And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bore sons to them, the same became mighty men, who were of old, men of renown. You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Now here are your hosts, Basil and Gons. Hey everybody, thanks again for tuning in to Canary Cry Radio. This is Basil. I'd like to welcome everybody from Twitter and Facebook, Revelations Radio Networks, iTunes. Uh, if you're tuning in on the website, that would, uh, we really appreciate your visits there. And uh, I just wanted to um, direct everybody also to our Twitter, at Canary Cry Radio. Uh, you can also search us on Facebook. And we're also uh, on the list at Revelations Radio Networks. Um, if you can, check us out on iTunes and sign up for the podcast there. And also, we love to hear your feedback and your emails uh, and comments and things like that. So don't be afraid to reach out and say hello. Um, yeah, and this is, this is Gons. And um, the quality of the podcast may be a little interesting tonight because we have a guest, um, a good friend of mine. His name is Douglas Hamp. And uh, Doug, how you doing? Hey, pretty good. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself so uh, people that may not know who you are can uh, figure out who you are. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm a really nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> like long I love walks to ski. on the beach. <laughs> but I suppose you probably want some other some other things. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, my I guess my latest claim to fame is uh, I've written a book called Corrupting the Image and uh, you know, I talk about uh, a lot of transhumanist things. I talk about the mark of the beast, uh, what's coming. Uh, a lot of this was inspired based on, well, I, based, I guess I should say I was using my particular skill set, which is uh, Hebrew and Greek. I went to the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, spent three years there and got a master's degree. And uh, I taught for uh, about eight years at the Calvary Chapel School of Ministry. Hebrew and Greek and other things. And so I just, you know, really was putting some things together and um, wrote this book. And it's, uh, it's, you know, it's been pretty exciting. It's, it's got a lot of uh, pretty good reviews. And, um, you know, it, we're, we're in definitely in exciting days, to say the least. Uh, and I'd, I'd say that we're in the days of Noah. So we see it coming. Yeah, we just got to get ready and tell people. Definitely, no. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, let me just say that I uh, just picked up my copy today and have been going through it all day long, and it is um, just so fascinating. Um, I just couldn't put it down all day. So I recommend everybody go check it out. And I'm really excited to actually talk about it a little bit here with Doug. So thanks again very much for coming on the show. What's well, my pleasure. Uh, I had a question real quick, Doug. Living in uh, Jerusalem, or, or at least Israel, what was that like? How did it shape kind of your view of 
scripture. I mean, you're right there where stuff went down. How was, uh, were you able to visit places and take a look at, you know, where things happened and how, how did that change your perspective of, of scripture? Well, yeah, going to the places where Jesus walked, et cetera. I mean, it, it gives you such a perspective and, you know, now you can have a feel for the sun on your face and the wind in your hair and the smells and all that stuff that you can never get from the text. And, uh, and also, uh, learning Hebrew really gives you, a, a, I think, a, a, just a wonderful perspective because I think for too long we have been looking at the Bible through very Gentile, Greek-centered kind of eyes. Mm. And we need, really need to be looking at it through Hebraic eyes. And, you know, it's not to say that, that uh, you have to become necessarily a specialist in the Talmud or something like that or, um, you know, or, or eat kosher or something. Right. But, <laughs> but um, when you understand that, that Jesus was Jewish, the disciples were Jewish, that the whole context of this is Jewish, and then looking at it from just understanding Hebrew, even, you know, mildly, and having that as your foundation rather than sort of the Greek worldview, you have the, the Hebrew worldview and you filter it through that lens, then things begin to jump out at you uh, in a, a sort of a bolder way. Right. And, um, and and just looking at it through those glasses, I think, really helps us to uh, to see the... The, the true intent of, of the text. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, one thing I liked about the book was that um, you do, you do uh, go into that quite a bit and you explain everything that um, sort of each of the words that you looked at in your research and things like that. And you actually give a little uh, warning in the front that that's uh, something to expect. And I, I, for one, enjoyed it a lot. And I think it adds a lot um, to the experience that is, uh, going through some of these things that you, you uncover. Well, yeah, and some of the things are, uh, how should I say, non-traditional. Right. So I, I wanted to, <laughs> you know, I wanted to make sure that, that they're very well grounded in Scripture. It's not just me coming up with some new idea. Right. But, you know, I can say, look, here's what the, the language says, here's what history says, uh, here's what the ancient commentators were saying. And so that, you know, people can't just say, well, you're just making that up and you, you know, you have some interesting ideas, but they're based on speculation. Right. Uh, it, I think speculation is a four-letter word. I, I like to, you know, base my findings on the text. And, and that's what I believe has to be the foundation of our theology is, is the language. You know, everything is built on top of the language. And, right. uh, and then we go and start looking at our theology and so if it's not in the language then it just isn't there and that's why we have to spend quality time really looking at that right, right. and and as untraditional as a lot of these topics are that you talk about um they feel so rooted in the way that you uh go about them and um you know they don't seem so high in the sky as you know some other um types of uh you know uh, subject matter like this does a lot, so you really feel like uh, you got both feet on the ground um, introducing these things, and that's another uh, great part of the thing. Again, I'm, just as I've been going through it today, but it's something uh, to be appreciated. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah you know, I think, uh, and of course, you know, what are we talking about? I mean, I, I start with the image of God, and I, I suggest there that 
the image of God is is more than just his characteristics of love and patience and goodness and all that stuff, which certainly is included, but it actually includes what he looks like. And that's been somewhat of a uh, a taboo among theologians for a very long time. And, you know, I, <laughs> I was praying and, and kind of sweating as I was writing my book because I thought, oh boy, I'm going to get... Uh, you know, tarred and feathered when I start talking about this stuff. Uh, the whole idea that God would have a body, uh, you say, right. oh, that's what the cults think or something, you know. Right. Uh, good Christians don't think such things. And and yet, this, this idea that when it talks about God's hands and feet, his hair, etc., that it's anthropomorphic language, uh, which is the standard explanation. In other words, whenever you have these kind of descriptions, it is God using human terms to describe himself in ways we can understand, it sounds good at first until you begin to realize that there's no verse that says that. There's nowhere in the Bible that says, okay, just because he said that, it doesn't mean that he really meant that. Right. Uh, you, to just take that in, in a figurative kind of sense. And what I saw is that every time the prophets would see God, they would you know, see a form. Uh, Ezekiel describes him as Adam uh, that's mm-hmm. sitting on top of the right. throne. Uh, you know, Daniel sees this this man of fire, and uh, and this uh, fiery stream is coming out from before him, and he's got hair that's the color of wool, etc. And so every time the prophets would see him, he had a real substantial form, uh, right. not not made of dirt or anything like that, because God isn't made of anything. He's he's it. I mean, he's the 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 first cause. He's the the grand paradigm of all things. And everything is, uh, you know, all of us are, are but a copy of him. Right. But, um, you know, and, and what I did, what I discovered is that is so important. In fact, that's really central to so many parts of our theology. That if we if we leave that out, then uh, we're we're missing a great deal. We leave God as this very fuzzy, uh, not really sure how to understand him kind of God, and yet Absolutely. we see that. Yeah, Scripture says that he has. He's very tangible. He has a, a a body that you can you can look upon. He's not just some cloudy, vaporous kind of kind of guy. Yeah, and I I love the that you jump right into it. And um, in chapter two, which is entitled "Adam's Biophotons and Future Bodies of Light," you know, I remember reading that chapter the first time, or you know, and just thinking, "Wow, you know, there's so much to it." And actually connected with with a lot of things that I was thinking about, not necessarily knowing exactly um, where it connected with the Bible. And that's why I think your book is so awesome is because it really connects, you know, the various ideas that we know about DNA in certain aspects. But um, can you talk a little bit about what, I mean, you know, what is Adam's biophotons and, you know, what did you discover with looking into DNA and, you know, biology and, how it relates to what is revealed to us in the scriptures. Yeah. Well, probably the easiest place to start is, is at the end. And we see that in the, Jesus said, uh, in the kingdom of their father, uh, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Daniel 12, 3 says that uh, the wise will shine like the firmament and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever. Revelation nineteen eight says, to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, pure and bright, and the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So, you know, there in just those three verses, and there are more that talk about how we're right. going to have bodies that will be emitting light. Right. And, right. and then, 
And then you jump, you go back to Moses, and you see that when Moses was on top of the mountain for 40 days and nights, he came down and his face was glowing. He was shining out light. And so, you know, the question is, what is the mechanism by which he can actually emit light? And I think so many people just want to say, well, we don't know. There's no way we can know. It's just a mystery, and that's that. But it turns out it isn't, because uh, there's something called biophotons, uh, it's, uh, it's a phenomenon in which our DNA, uh, not just ours, but all living things, absorb light and emit light. And this is, this was first discovered by Ukrainian biologist Alexander Gversht. Uh, then it was, uh, it was um, confirmed by Italian scientists, by Russian scientists, by German, also by the Japanese School of Medicine at Kanazawa University, Kanazawa, Japan, in the 70s, uh, that... Our, all DNA absorbs light and it emits light. And today it's very, very small because, you know, the only source of light we have is the sun. But right. imagine if we were in God's presence, it would be really big. Right. And what I, what I really think is interesting uh, when it comes to this is, 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 you know, growing up Christian, you, you read these verses and you hear these things and uh, you, you really don't give it a second thought. It's almost like you hear about, um, you know, we're going to be glowing, and you hear about uh, just all the light involved in the whole um, picturing of the thing, but you don't really think of it, at least I didn't, until uh, really giving it a second thought here, that it is actually a physical light. It's not necessarily this sort of spiritual concept where um, it's more of like a, I don't know, a glorification um, but it's actually, a, a, the light is um, something that actually happens physically. And it's exciting, isn't it? And in fact, right. I was at a party and I was sharing some of the finds, findings of my book with, with somebody. And I told her about our, our you know, bodies that are coming. And she's like, oh, well, that's just figurative language. I'm like, well, you know, why do you say that? She's like, well, it just is. And, yeah. and that was the end of the discussion for her. She would have, you know, nothing of it. She would not even entertain the idea that there could be more. And, you know, I understand where she's coming from because I think we've sort of been programmed to do that, that uh, these things that we don't understand, that people have not understood for for generations, now in today's world, we now have a, 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 you know, a plausible explanation of how these things could be. And, uh, but now it seems... You know, it seems too far out there. And what I think is really sad, and actually a danger, is that if we believers don't um, demonstrate that the Bible has answers, then people will go to the New Age, etc., to find answers. And the whole idea of having a, a, a glowing body is very popular among the New Agers. Right. Yeah. And that, that could be one thing that, that scares people. And yet, when you realize that the Bible had the idea first— Right. And you're like, oh, well, the, the new age is just is just taking that idea, an idea that we should be embracing, yeah. And because we're not, then people go there, and and they kind of get all the credit for it. And it's really sad because you know what? Who doesn't want to have a body of light? That's pretty. That's kind of cool, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, when right. you think about it, and even this new age idea of of you know being a light bearer and all this stuff, it, it's there's some yeah. attraction to that. And yet, if we if we abdicate on this idea, then we've given it to them, and and suddenly, 
we lose touch with reality. And people are like, well, I want more than just hanging out in the clouds with Jesus forever. Right, you know? right. What's in it for me? What am I going to be like? And we're like, well, we don't really know. But um, it's going to be nice. You'll like it. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, it almost it almost seems like some of this stuff that the the new age movement is bringing to the table is seems like um, uh, you know a a twisted version of what actually um, we are looking forward to, which is like you said, not necessarily floating in the clouds with Jesus, but we are we become. Um, the full picture of what we are created to be, which is much more than just a body and much more than just um, what some people would imagine a spirit would be like. Right, and and see, that's the thing of, you know, what is a spirit? I, I have a chapter in the book of the the nature of the spiritual realm, mm-hmm. our spiritual dimension, and I think we, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what is spirit. Right. Uh, when we think of spirit, we think of something like a cloud, something fuzzy, vaporous, uh, you know, not really there. It's completely intangible. And that is not at all what the Bible tells us about the spiritual realm. And to just kind of sum it up really quickly, you can't, um, we often talk about literal versus spiritual. And already we've set up this this dichotomy that's a false dichotomy. Right. Because something that is literal is not contrasted by something that is spiritual. Right. Uh, something that is physical or earthly is contrasted by something that is spiritual. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul says, Brethren, I do not want any of you to be ignorant that all of our fathers were under the cloud and they passed through the sea and they all ate the same spiritual food. And you're like, okay, what did they eat back there in the wilderness? Well, they ate manna, of course. And they really did eat this stuff. They went out, and they went out, and they said, manna, right? They said, you know, what's this? Right. And uh, sure enough, it was bread. They could eat it. They could cook it. You know, it gave energy to their body. So it was very, very real. But right. it, So in what way was it spiritual? Well, where did it come from? It came from heaven. It came from the other realm. And the same is true of the spiritual water, that the water did not originate from planet Earth, but it originated from the spiritual realm. So it's very tangible, but it doesn't come from carbon atoms, shall we say. Right. It comes from something else. Right. And, and that's what is to be understood, is that whatever spirit is, it seems to be an indivisible property. Uh, you know, if you take anything here on this planet, we can always chop it down into smaller and smaller bits until we get to atoms and electrons, neutrons, protons, and quarks and mm-hmm. Higgs particles and whatever is beyond that. So there's always a it's always divisible, and it appears that spirit is indivisible. It's it's it is the base, um, you know, the, the base particle, if you will. Right. And and so th- that's just really something to understand. And even, you know, where it says that God is spirit. Well, sure, God is spirit. He's not made of dirt because he made the dirt, right? So, you know, that, that cannot be a description of him. But whatever spirit is, especially in the case of God, which I don't really know, but, I, you know, I, I take that one on just on pure faith. But uh, but whatever that is, it, um, it, it, it is some some kind of a substance, if you will. And especially when we're talking about the angels. I mean, God's sort of in his own, you know, he is in his own uh, category. But when it comes to the angels, we see that 
they had bodies. They were able to to uh, manifest, and they could open gates, and they could release prisoners, and they could shut the lion mouth, lion's mouth, and all these things. So and they fight. Yeah, they fight. So they could stop one another. So right. there's definitely something that can be done there. Yes, yeah, I want to jump back a little bit to some of the light body stuff that we we were talking about. Um, and Michael Heiser wrote a uh, a piece. It's an essay. You can get it on PDF, and it's called "The Nikesh and His Seed." And um, basically, he goes through how the word um, "henakesh," which is translated "serpent," nachash. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't. Nahash. I don't know the uh, the That's proper okay. Hebrew. <laughs> That's why we have Doug here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm butchering the Hebrew. Um, but basically, he understood it to be. Um, meaning with the adjective uh, form of the word to mean bright, uh, brazen, like shiny brass. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it almost seems like it makes more sense that if we were light bodies and this light kind of shiny being approached Eve, it would make more sense that that's kind of how it was pre-fall. Whereas, you know, I mean, obviously people always talk about, oh, you know, talking snake and, and this and that. And what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? You know, uh, do you think it was literally a talking snake or do you think Michael Heiser's onto something here with the, uh, his translation of the word? For well, he, he's definitely uh, correctly picked up on an aspect of the word. Uh, the problem is that that word is simply used for snakes and other parts of the Bible. Uh, the question is, when we go back to the first instance of it, uh, are we to think of you know a simple snake like we have today, right. which could be, or is there a wordplay going on so that it could be perhaps both of some sort? Maybe yeah. there is some kind of a serpentine form to this creature, and yet also uh, an illustrious shining aspect as well. Right. And I think both are possible. So it's it's hard to say that it, it can, it's only shining one because we do see the word used for, you know, just snakes like we have today. Right. Uh, but but I I've read his 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 piece and I think he makes a pretty good case for it. And it wouldn't surprise me because you know what I'm what I'm suggesting is that Adam and Eve had bodies of light that they were covered. I mean, again, they had a real body. Don't get me wrong, they had a body, but they were absorbing God's light because they were in his presence. There was no sin, there was no decay. Uh, his light was there as well because he was hanging out with them, you know, going for walks in the cool of the evening. Uh, so, And there was no veil between heaven and earth at that point like we, that, like there is today. And, and that's a whole other study, which I can articulate if you want. But um, So, you know, God's light was shining directly into them. And as it did, they absorbed his light and then re-emitted his light, very much like Moses. But the, the glory did not fade away until they ate of the fruit, and that's when the glory began to fade away. Right. And they could feel it. They could sense it. They're like, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, we've done something. Right. And that's when they, their eyes were open. They said, uh, I think we're naked. You know, we just lost something really big. What happened? Yeah. And you know, that was a major moment. Yeah, that that to me makes a lot of sense in that, you know, uh, were they, because I was always confused about, well, were they running around naked and something happened in their head or brain or something and all of a sudden they realized they were naked and ashamed or, you know, it just always seemed just kind of, 
uh, allegorical in, in that sense, but you really put kind of a physical aspect to it of, of this is what really happened. It's kind of cool. Um, right. And just the, uh, the shining snake, um, uh, point we were talking about earlier makes a lot of sense to me for, you know, as we know, Lucifer was, uh, you know, the angel of light and things like this. And also, as I understand it with my very little knowledge of Hebrew is they really enjoyed that kind of wordplay and they, they took advantage of it quite often. Is that am I on the right track there, Doug? Yeah, uh, we, we, in fact, we see in the Aramaic Targumim of the word naked, there's actually a wordplay going on. Because that same word uh, is used in Genesis 3.1, where it talks about the serpent being the most cunning of all the creatures in the garden. The word there is arum, which is the same word you have just one verse earlier, talking about how they were naked. And, um, and the, uh, the Aramaic Targum takes that word and, and it, it says that they were wise, but they did not hold on to their wisdom. Mm. And um, so the word prudent or wise or crafty, however you want to translate that, that's the same word. And they definitely understood that. And then when you come to the word and their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked, there's actually a variant in the spelling in that word. And so what I argued is that that there was a word play going on between 2.27 and 3.1, and then when you get down to uh, verse, I think, 3.9, uh, when their eyes are opened, then there's actually a, a variation on the spelling, and mm. that's indicating to us that you know now something has actually changed. Now they really are naked. Right. Uh, you know, right. or before, you know, they were, they were in, in chapter 2, they're naked in the sense that they don't have any clothes on. But it's not they're naked like, you know, you taking a shower. They're, they're clothed with light. And, you know, it makes sense because every time we see nakedness in the Bible, it's a very negative thing. Right. Um, you know, there's only really one, one place where you're to be allowed to be naked, and that's in front of your husband or wife. But... You know, every other place, nakedness is seen as a, as a bad thing. Right. In fact, God talks about how He's going to, you know, after the you know many centuries of sinning on on Israel and Judah's part, that He's going to uh, lay open their nakedness, etc. Right. Uh, you know, that is a very negative thing. So, being clothed is the state that we want to be. Uh, you know, even uh, I believe Paul talks about that how. You know, that we're not going to be um, laid bare or naked or something like that, but we'll be fully clothed, right? Uh, so there's this idea that somehow we are lacking something. And it's so true because, um, I mean, you know, to think that I'll get to heaven and suddenly I have no clothes on, right. it's kind of like, whoa, that's kind of weird, you know? <laughs> but, but no, I'm going to have, I'm gonna have a, a garment, and it'll be a garment of light. Just as God clothes himself with light as with a garment, so too, that was our original, um, you know, our original state. purpose was yeah. to have our state was to have this covering of light, just like the angels. And Jesus says that those who are were counted worthy to attain to the resurrection of that age uh, will neither marry nor be given in marriage, for they will not die, because they'll be equal to the angels, being sons of the resurrection, sons of God. So, um, 
you know, that, that's just something where we're going to have the same kind of covering that the angels have. And when the angels show up, they're really bright. Uh, they're exceedingly bright. And so we're going to have the same kind of covering. That's cool. And, you know, I want to dig in to a little bit more of the, you know, Satan stuff in a second here. But, um, uh, you know, Doug, you, you were part of the film that I made, Age of Deceit. And um, I think one of the coolest parts that of the film that where you, you come out is and you say that, you know, the reason why um, Jesus had to be born of a virgin, you know, the genetic perspective of that was really eye-opening for me. I thought that was really cool. Um, can you kind of outline it for us? You don't have to go too deep into it, but just kind of this, uh, an overview of, um, you know, how this all relates, this genetic stuff that, that you kind of uncovered here with, uh, with Jesus and how it relates to why he is who he is. Well, what I discovered, uh, it really had to do with the idea of the seed and, um, what I when I started investigating what is a seed, it it was one of those things that I I thought I knew what it was until I had to define it, and then I really I didn't know because you know just looking at a seed uh, that you might pick up at the grocery store or something right. that uh, you know a sunflower seed, it's not it's not like what is this thing, right? <laughs> uh, so inside there, I kept wondering what makes this thing tick. Why when I put it in the ground that it does it actually do something? Right. Uh, and inside, there's, of course, uh, chromosomes and there are uh, genes, and then you get down to the DNA. And I was like, okay, of course, there's DNA inside a seed. That's, that's, I should have known that, right? Well, there's still something more than DNA. And I read a book by Dr. Werner Gitt, in the beginning was information. Right. And his first theorem was that information is a non-material entity. And theorem number two is that it always requires a physical medium. And I was like, oh, of course. <laughs> DNA is the hardware that stores the software. Right. In other words, it is the CD-ROM, you know, that we carry, and we might put a, a Word document on there or whatever it is. You know, we don't care so much about the plastic, though, until it, you know, gets a skip and it stops working. <laughs> right. But we, you know, we need the plastic CD-ROM, but it's really the data that we care about. But we, we might as well just transfer it to our cell phone, or we might transfer it to a, a thumb drive or to our computer, or put it in the cloud. You know, it, it doesn't really so much matter the medium as it does the information. That's what we're ultimately about. And, and I realized that when Adam and Eve sinned, that their DNA got screwed up. It had, de it had uh, data loss. Right. And that data loss was then copied through sexual reproduction, it was copied, and then their children made a copy until we finally get to you and I. And uh, we have errors in our code, and lots of them. And this has been proven. Uh, Dr. John Sanford wrote a book called Genetic Entropy, and he showed how uh, we as a human race are about 50% on our way toward extinction uh, and that with every new generation, there are a hundred new uh, base mutations, a um, hundred base pair mutations with every successive, successive generation. And so that should uh, clarify a lot of uh, questions that you know some parents might be having, you know, wondering if their children are more mutant than they are. <laughs> and yes, right. they are. 
but uh, but of course, you know, we are more mutant than our parents as well. And we, we really are mutant. And eventually, given enough time, the whole human race will kick the bucket. So what well, happened, though, is that there's also something called a Y chromosome that's passed from father to son. And that Y chromosome is virtually identical to the one that we received from our father, who got it from his father, all the way back to Adam. And two guys, uh, Mark Bradman and Neil Thomas, uh, talk about how this this Y chromosome, uh, if you take it all the way back, it goes back to the original father of the race. You know, of course, they don't say it was Adam because they're they're some evolutionists, but they they say that you know whoever this person was, his Y chromosome experienced uh, has a record of an event of. But they say it had no, you know, significant uh, change in the person. But there's a record of an event, and so that record of an event has been passed from father to son, from generation to generation, all the way up to this modern time. Hmm. And when you begin to see that, that Adam passes it to all of his sons except one, uh, that we know as, you know, the, the son of man, Jesus, that's his favorite term for himself, Jesus was born of the virgin birth, uh, shared in, in the genetics of humanity through his mother, but did not have the Y chromosome of his father. And, you know, I thought that was pretty exciting when I discovered that, because I was like, yeah. wow, this is really exciting. And, you know, my whole, my whole thinking was, God does not do random things. He's not just going to say, well, I think I'll, you know, have you be born through a virgin. Right. But there's a, there's a real reason that he does these things. They're not ad hoc, right. but there's sort of a mechanical reason, if you will. Uh, and and I, I believe I've discovered the, the mechanical reason is that there was something uh, messed up with that Y chromosome that Jesus could not inherit. And I would argue that there's some aspect of original sin has been passed through that Y chromosome. And right, because that's where he, my... My mind yeah. went immediately to that. Yeah, and so because he doesn't have that, he doesn't share in that original sin, genetically speaking, that Adam has, right. uh, and, you, and you, that all of us have. You described him as uh, the second Adam, and I, I had a lot of people comment like, "Oh, that's you know that's blasphemy," and you know, as if he's just you know a reincarnation of Adam or something. But that's not what you're saying when you say second Adam, right? Well, doesn't Scripture call him the second Adam? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's what that I actually. That's yeah. what I thought. I mean, yeah, uh, well, I, I'm called, just I'm just echoing people that have yeah. brought up uh, you know rejections on the yeah. that part of the film. Sure, and, and well, in, you in know, your comments, I, I guess it's up to them to to demonstrate how or, you know what Scripture actually means by calling him right. the second Adam. Uh, you know, I mean, look, he he's he's genetically connected to Adam and Eve. Right. There's no question about that. Um, so he, he's still, you know, he's not like an alien to us. Uh, he, he's connected to us and that's, I think of, of great importance that he be connected to us. He's, you know, he's not just from Mars, right? He, he, he's one of us. Right. And yet he's distinct because whatever Adam had that, that caused this genetic failure, he did not inherit that. And right. so now we can be part of him, he's part of us, and yet 
there's some part that he doesn't have. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, Scripture calls him the second Adam. I didn't make that up. <laughs> and yeah. it, it brings a whole new kind of meaning to being born again uh, for us, um, not that it's just some kind of uh, metaphorical thing once again, but it's an actual being born again, literally. Yeah, and, and of course, if you go and look at uh, in John chapter 3 in the Greek, you can definitely make a case that it's to be born from above right? rather than, because you know, the word there is, is ana, which is again versus palin. I mean, it's, it, uh, ana is above versus the word palin, which is again. Mm. Right. So, um, you know, it's the, the focus. I mean, I, you know, you could argue it either way, but I think born from above is a, is a clearer translation that, you know, we're born once and this is, and see, this all brings it into perspective, too, where Jesus said, listen, you know, if you're born of the flesh, you're flesh. If you're born of the spirit, you're spirit. You've got to be born of water, that is, right. through your mother, because, you know, you're, you're in a sack of water for your first nine months, and then you come out. And then you have to be born of the spirit. And it, it just puts all these things into, into proper perspective Yeah. when we see that we have to be born from above. Because now, you know, we're born naturally as a son of Adam, and now we need to be born as a son of, of God, or a son of the second Adam, right. to be able to be in his presence, to be like him. And we're told that we're going to be like him. We're going to wake in his likeness, the psalmist says. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cool. and, the, uh, and Basil, you okay over there? I hear doors moving and all sorts of uh. stuff going huh? Yeah, I'm good. All right, Keep, cool. Just hold down the fort. Just making sure. Um, uh, let's get into the Antichrist because that's a, that's a big part of your book and um, big part of your research. And um, one thing that again, I'm I'm bringing up questions that I often hear uh, with um, some of the things you discussed. People are always curious, and they always ask, "Satan has DNA?" You know, when you talk about the recombinant DNA um, of uh, the, the possible scenario and how the Antichrist is going to come about. Um, can you kind of jive on that a little bit of like, does Satan have literal DNA or how is that going to come about? Um, sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and again, the key is to go back to Dr. Werner Gitt's theorem that information right. is a non-material entity. So probably the easiest way to understand it is to, Take our CD or you know um, CD-ROM understanding again, and say the CD-ROM is a piece of plastic, which maybe costs us twenty cents or something. But there's information on there that is of great value. Right. Where is that information? What is that information? Can I touch it? Can I feel it? Can I see it? No, I can do none of those things. I can't taste it or hear it. But what I, if I put it into the right kind of player, then I can access that information. And I can, of course, store that information. I can send that information. So inside our DNA is a code. And it's the code that is non-material that we're talking about. Right. And, you know, even God is, it says that God has seed. First John 3, 9, no one having been born again continues a sin for the seed of God dwells in him. Right. Uh, you also ha see in Isaiah 53.10 where we're told there 
that it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. So here it's talking about Jesus, the Messiah, who has seed. Uh, and there, if you look at it in the Greek, it's the word zera. If you look at it, I mean the Hebrew, zera. In the Greek, it's the word sperm, sperma. So, uh, and, and as well as in 1 John 3, 9, uh, we're told in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 23, it says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So we have this um, this seed that is that that's in us. It's not corruptible seed. I mean, that's what we have today as just right. humans. Right. But we, as sons of God, we have incorruptible seed, mm. and that's given to us through the Lord Jesus. Mm. Somehow, you know, I don't I don't fully understand all these things. But I'm just saying that's what Scripture says, right. and and really the key is to go back to Genesis three fifteen, mm. where it says, "I will cause enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed." Now he's speaking to Satan there, and he says some some important things. First of all, he gives us that future hope of the the proto evangelium, the first gospel, right. the first mention of the Lord Jesus, and where we see there that. It is through the seed of the woman. And people have said, well, we know that women don't have seed. So, you know, this has to be some kind of metaphor or something. Well, that's nonsense. We know that women have seed. Women have a seed just like men have seed. Uh, you know, just for the man, it's, it's you know, quite obvious. But for the woman, now that we, uh, you know, have, have been able to look inside and, and uh, with greater instruments and such, we have a much better understanding of what's happening inside a woman's body. She has an egg that, that you know happens once a month. It comes down the fallopian tube. And inside that egg, uh, ultimately, are 23 chromosomes, uh, which is information. That's a seed. And it's the same material as what the man produces from the sperm. Uh, the only difference is if it's a boy or a girl. Right. But if it's, if, if it's a girl... Then the man, uh, com he he provides the same exact information that the woman provides, and you really can't. You can, there's no difference between them. Only in the case of a boy, will the man provide one Y chromosome, and that's it. Mm. So, so a woman has a seed, and if that's true, if we're looking here at the seed of the woman, then what about your seed? If we go back to Genesis. There, 315, right. talking to Satan again, your seed. So, right there, in the very beginning of human history, we're told that Satan has seed. Right. Then we, we fast forward three chapters to Genesis chapter 6, where we see that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair, and they took any they chose as wives, and the Nephilim, or the the giants, if you will, in the, the Greek, uh, were on the earth in those days. And uh, when the sons of God came down, they begat children to these daughters of men. These were the mighty men of renown, the men of men of old, the men of renown. Right. So, if it could happen with, with these fallen angels, uh, which it's very, very clear that it's fallen angels we're talking about. Right. It's not the sons of Seth and all that nonsense. 
which nobody believed until Augustine, incidentally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, everybody, uh, Josephus, Philo, the Targumim, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, the, the um, Genesis Apocryphon, the Book of the Giants, uh, as well as, as, Enoch as and Christian Enoch, and, yeah, etc., Yasher, the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, uh, plus you have uh, Commodianus, Athenagoras, uh, Atha, uh, these guys all believed that it was angels who came down and mated with women to create this hybrid race. So when Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so the coming of the Son of Man will be, everybody was like, whoa. <laughs> right. Okay, yeah. so, so, oh, so that's what's going to happen. I get it, right, that's that's pretty scary. So they understood that, and right, you know, if if these demons can pass on their seed. I'm sure Satan can pass on his seed. But we're not talking about simply a double helix or or, uh, nucleic acids. We're not talking simply about hardware. We're talking about a code. That's what we're really talking about. And that code can be passed on. Yeah. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And I think it helps clarify what you meant by that. Yeah, and on my part here, that seems to be just another one of those things that you just sort of pass over without, you know, uh, thinking critically about it. And I think that that's um, one thing that's very important is to take these sort of things that aren't thought critically about a lot and then um, really working them into a worldview that is literal and is um, does fit in with, with uh, the rest of it, really. And... Um, so I think that's very important, very good point that you brought up there, and uh, something that I will definitely be sharing with um, the people with whom I share things. <laughs> well, <laughs> very uh, yeah. cool. <laughs> the, the Genesis Genesis six was where I first started to really the Bible really perked my interest uh, because I noticed, you know, as I when I first became a believer, I, I said, okay, I'm going to read through the Bible, and I stopped at Genesis six, and I thought, well, what is going on here? You know, they don't talk about this on Sundays, you know. And um, after digging, I, you know, obviously found out that there's different views on it and stuff. But it seemed like the people that are actually looking at it scholastically, historically, they all seem to be saying the same thing, that these sons of God were actually, you know, physical demons that kind of came down, these angels that, that actually manifested and were around. And they were walking around and, you know, that the Nephilim, they were giants and they were giants walking around and... It's kind of hard to wrap your head around, but um, you you uncover a little bit in your book um, some of the evidence, and along with you know obviously the work of Steve Quayle. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Steve Quayle is probably one of the um, probably the most uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for extensive in the in the uh, realm of uh, um, you know documenting different giants and things that have a that have been discovered throughout our, the history of archaeology and even beyond. Um, what what was probably the most compelling one you found, Doug, in, in that you document in your book um, regarding um, the the giants and and actually the the evidence for actual giants being around? Well, are you talking about extra biblical evidence or yeah, or extra yeah? Let's let's yeah. let's go extra biblical. Yeah. Well. You know, I, I tried to be just super, super careful because there's a lot of uh, stuff floating around 
on uh, the internet, uh, these pictures and such. And, you know, at first glance, they looked pretty exciting. But then I didn't want to quote anything that I could not be 100% sure of. So what I decided to do, um, with the exception of one picture, I just used, I used testimonies. And I found a number of newspaper clippings that had been uh, microfished. And I could then go to newspaperarchive.org and look these things up. And I could look at the actual newspaper clipping from 100 years ago, you know, before the days of Photoshop and such. I could find these accounts of people in France, people in Iowa, uh, etc., were finding skeletons between 10 to 15 feet tall. And I thought that was quite compelling. And then there was one more that I found. It's called the Irish Giant, found in County Antrim in Ireland. And uh, this this giant, they've got a picture there from the Strand Magazine uh, in 1895. And that was reprinted in a book uh, in 1901. And I have that book, so I know that it's not a product of Photoshop. And... I can say that that's a legitimate picture. And to me, that was quite compelling to see that this giant is leaned up against the side of a railway car, and there's a ladder next to him. Right. And it's also reported that he has 12 toes on his right foot. Wow. wow. Uh, so, you know, there, there's that kind of stuff. Now, you know, there's also a lot of uh, reports of people who have found things, and then the Smithsonian... You know, they come in, they sweep they come in, in and they, take yeah, everything they, away. Exactly, you know, and, and I'm 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 tempted to believe that, but you know, I'm still I'm left with no evidence, so that's right. that's the problem. Right. And um, you know, rather than, than sort of going on the conspiracy route, which you know, again I think it's very, very, very plausible, but rather than go down that path because it doesn't really give you anything, I wanted to just stick with uh testimonies because I think testimonies are, are very powerful. Yeah, and, speaking, and um, the, so the, you know there, there's oh, there's quite a bit when you look at it. There's quite a bit of evidence. Yeah, I was, I was just going to jump in and just a quick thing. I was watching this thing yesterday on mermaids, and I know it sounds ridiculous, but this group of researchers found uh, um, basically recorded a noise underwater, and it sounded like language, and uh, and they eventually found a corpse and and pieced it back together, and it ended up looking like basically a mermaid, a humanoid fish. And as soon as they got everything together, um, the police came in, took everything away. And this is testimony again, but uh, it's, you know, it's an interesting thing that Hmm. there's more accounts of that kind of behavior with uh, the government and everything else. But uh, um, Basil, you had a question about um, the counterfeit rapture. Yeah. I just sort of wanted to uh, uh, talk about that a little bit, get some aliens in here. Um, what, uh, my, um, question was in your, uh, account or, or your, um, book here, are you talking in a, uh, pre-trib or a, um, you know, post-trib or where are you coming from there? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I, I myself am of a pre-trib perspective, Right. But what I found so ex- uh, you know very uh, fascinating and even exciting about this idea of the counterfeit rapture 
is that this is looking at it from the eyes of the aliens, okay? And, and when right. we talk about aliens, we're talking about demons who are pretending to be aliens. Right. And they are giving messages. They're relaying messages to humanity via channelers and, and people in the, in the New Age. Right. And the messages that they're giving are essentially that cataclysmic events will come upon the earth. They will help us overcome those events. They will take those that can't or won't evolve to the next level. Those that remain get to evolve to the next level now. And even a man from among us will be raised up with special powers and knowledge. So these are the, the, the basic bullet points of what they are saying. And then you start to, you look at their, their actual messages. For example, um, Ruth Montgomery, in her book, Aliens Among Us, she writes how the aliens have communicated that they're coming in great numbers, not with any intention to harm, but to rescue the Earth from pollution and nuclear explosions. You have uh, Barbara Marcinek. She's a New Age popular author and um, Chandler. And she says in her book, Bringers of the Dawn, uh, she says the people who leave the planet during the time of Earth changes do not fit in here any longer. And they are stopping the harmony of Earth. When the time comes that perhaps 20 million people leave the planet at one time, there will be a tremendous shift in consciousness for those who are remaining. And you have, you know, just lots of other messages like that. She has a right. few more, uh, and and you know, there's 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 warnings coming from Ashtar via New Age writer Thelma Terrell, who says she gets these messages from Ashtar, the leader of the alien confederation. Right. Incidentally, yeah. Ashtar is just the same demon uh, who was known as Ashtoreth in back of the Bible. Or Ashtoreth, right. yeah. You know, one thing I found interesting in one of the accounts was uh, um, the concept of um, the rapture being a sort of evacuation and uh, the message being, you know, don't worry, we're, we're going to get the rest of you. They've just been evacuated. Um, something like that, evacuated from the planet. And it's interesting because, in a way, it sort of is an evacuation. Um, well, it totally is, yeah. yeah. And it, that's why I would call it, I'd call it a mirror image. Uh, you know, if you look at yourself in the mirror, it's the reverse image of who you are. And so we're looking at it, we're looking at a rapture event, but it, it's all reversed. Right. It's It's now given to us through... Uh, Satan's perversion because he knows the event is coming. He can't stop that. So what he has to do is find a way to deceive the world, to convince the world that the thing that just happened is not Jesus coming from heaven to take people to be with him, but it's rather he and his cohorts who are pretending to be aliens who are coming and taking the bad people away versus you know the the believers. These are take. They're taking the bad people, the the bigots, and the the hateful people that don't believe in homosexuality and uh, pornography, yeah. pornography, pornography, and and pedophilia and all this stuff. They're you know they're taking those people away, so that the people that remain can now have a great time. Yeah. And I think the world's going to go for it because it's it's a very brilliant. Uh, plan. I mean, you have to give them a couple points for, you know, creativity. Yeah. He's a very talented spin doctor. 
Oh yes, what it seems to be. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the the transhumanist movement, and I've heard you in the past, Doug, talk about the the whole movement actually being something that is not going to be attained. Um, the idea of a singularity, the idea of post-human. Um, and in, in our last episode, uh, Basil and I talked about some quotes from um, this Global Future 2045 Congress uh, that happened in Moscow. And it was basically a bunch of um, uh, physicists and biologists and anthropologists, all these you know big science people getting together, talking about the future of science, where it's headed, um, the guy who put it together believes that we'll have human immortality by 2045. Um, some of the more compelling quotes were um, one of the one of the guys, Alexander Panoff, said um, that there's going to be a change in leadership. That you know, because evolution is progressive right now, science is the lead of evolution. But um, from this, he says, "quote It follows that change in leadership will take place, and another leader must come and replace science." A leader about which we don't know anything about yet, and uh, and then another quote by um, Barry Rodriguez, who's another professor, um, talking about how we need to create a new world consciousness and a new world civilization and a global enlightenment. And it seems like one of the things we came out from that was that even the sciences are starting to sound like a lot of these globalists in their language, you know, and the new agers, even with the global enlightenment type type language, where do you think that's heading? Where do you think, especially looking at it from a Christian worldview, what do you think is going on and, and how long do you think we have until we're yanked out of here? Well, I think 2045 or 48 is kind of the end point. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, I think if the Lord would not intervene that they would actually get their wish. Right. And uh, I think that's what is so uh, very serious about this is, you know, these guys are not just making stuff up. I think just, you know, the Lord said anything that they do, they will accomplish. There he said, back at the Tower of Babel. Right. Um, because they're of one mind. And now that we have overcome so many hurdles technologically, and, uh, you know, and I'm amazed. You can go on Google nowadays and you can really read a website from anywhere in the world and just hit translate, and you can have a, a you know a decent translation of what's going on on that web page. I mean that just makes the world much 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 smaller, and and of course with English being the the common language, it really helps as well. So you know mankind is now putting uh, so many brains together to figure out how to accomplish all these things, and I think that they'll achieve it. Right. But that's where I think I'm convinced. I mean, I firmly believe that the Lord is going to intervene before that because they are now playing with the source code of humanity. And it's at that point when we start tinkering with the code that God steps in. And I think that's what happened in the uh, in the days of Noah. Right. The demons were coming down and and making these hybrids, but apparently people were not so much against it. Uh, we don't see any place where they were crying out against it and asking God to save them. So when you start opening up the code and, and tinkering with it, that is when the Lord comes back, uh, as far as I can tell, historically. So here are some interesting things um, that I would 
like to hear your response for um, one pertaining to the beast. Um, in in a, a couple of our previous episodes, we had talked about the, mar- the um, mark of the beast, right? Yes, yeah, okay. the mark of the beast. Um, you know, we had talked about implants. We had talked about um, the very soon uh, and coming, uh, you know, tr- uh, push for transhumanism and uh, more than that, um, normalize. Yeah, normalizing implants. Um, things like that, the soul catcher chip we talked a lot about and how that seems like it could um, transfer into a sort of digital immortality, something like that. Now, where along um, in the timeline do you see uh, the Mark of the Beast in relation to um, sort of the more major uh, transhumanist move uh, or advances, I guess I would say? Well, I, I suspect that the real technology is is far more advanced than we are allowed to know. I think there is a lot of stuff going on behind closed doors, uh, Area Fifty One kind of stuff, if you will. That right. um, you know they have been working on various technologies for a very long time, and you know the fact that it's actually getting out to the public tells us that we're at the tail end of this thing, because. You know, we are now beginning to look at some of these things at a commercial level, um, and things that they've been working on for a long time and perfecting uh, behind the closed doors. So, the the mark of the beast. Um, what I again, what I see it needs to happen is that Satan simply chooses the man that he thinks is the right guy, and it's you know it's somebody who is already in cahoots with with Satan, who thinks that he's you know the greatest thing since sliced bread, and and really wants to be his his main man. But not only that, but he is lusting for eternal life. He has the money. He's got the power. He's got the women. He's got everything he could want, except life. He doesn't have eternal life. Right. And so he is now desperate for that. And Satan. Realizing that this is his opportunity and this is a you know the prime candidate, he then makes his his seed available, and I think this will be the first time in human history uh, that Satan has given his own personal seed uh, to a human, because there seems to be some kind of a a penalty. If you do that, you get cast into the pit, and Satan didn't want to do that, so he let all of his generals do it to see what would happen. Right. And uh, we know the outcome. They got thrown into the, the pit uh, in Tart- eternal chains of darkness. Yeah, into Tartarus, exactly. So, there, you know, now that he knows his time is short, he makes his own seed available to create the son of perdition. His own, you know, genetic hybrid son. But this person doesn't have to be born that way, but he can do so of his own free will uh, as a mature adult and he simply takes that genetic information and he uses a process called recombinant DNA, which will open up his DNA strand or strands and he'll inject this code into his own and then uh, his it'll be like it's basically putting a gene into a DNA strand right. and then it's, it's stitched up with a, what's called a ligase, which is an enzyme. And then his RNA, 
which is part of his body, will replicate that new DNA strand, and it will spread throughout his system. So this is a sort of scientific procedure you're talking about. Yeah. That sort yeah. of fits in with a, uh, a biological transhumanism. Right. And I think it's important because this guy doesn't need to be born this way. Right, he, he which becomes, I think is a big, which is a big misconception with a lot of people. I think, at least in in people that I have been um, in contact with, it seems like he he is born with um, the seed. Um, but what you're, what I seem to be getting from you is that you know it's it's more of a choice um, to be chosen and then to choose to take the seed. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's of the utmost importance because if he's born this way, that means he is predisposed, he's predestined, uh, you know, through no fault of his own, right, to uh, be damned to the lake of fire forever and ever. And I just don't see that God ever does that. Right, that's think, uh, an awful think, doctrine. Yeah, no, that's a. I think I'm actually uh, very excited that we we stumbled upon this part of the conversation because I think that's very important, and I think that's something that um, isn't thought about a lot. So, uh, so yeah, I find that very interesting. And and of course, I find biblical evidence for this. I'm not just making it up because I like it, but I see. Well, let's hear it. Well, in Daniel chapter eight, uh, in Daniel chapter eight, it um, talks about the little horn. And how he will ascend um, to where these other horns are. Uh, it says here in verse 10, it says, And it, the little horn, mm. grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. So, uh, first of all, this where it says he even exalted himself. It doesn't actually say that in the the Hebrew. It says that he was exalted, suggesting that it's something outside of mm. himself. That somebody else gave him the power. Somebody else caused this to happen. But secondly, where it says that it grew up to the host of heaven, the term host of heaven always refers to angelic beings. So he grows right. up to their level. Mm. He starts as a little horn and he becomes a full-fledged horn. And I show um, in the book from Revelation 17, 12, where the angel says to John, says, the horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom yet, but will receive authority for one hour with the beast. So if you think about that, if they were kings in John's day without a kingdom, but they were just waiting for it. That means they're sitting around back then waiting to receive this. That means that they uh, are at least 2,000 years old. And they're, right. they're waiting to get you know, whatever you know, they're supposed to get. They're waiting for it back then, and they're going to get it. And um, so anyway, the, these, these horns are demons. And he, this this little horn is going to rise up to become like these other horns. And he's going to cast some of them to the ground. And the same is true for the stars of, of stars to the, uh, so the stars, that's a, also a reference used for angels. And Revelation chapter 1, we see that Jesus has the seven stars in his hand, which are the seven angels to the seven churches. So, 
this uh, is a very powerful place, is this verse here, showing that he will be transformed. He will become the beast. He, he's not born as the beast, but he actually becomes the beast. And I think even the word, the beast, is very significant. Right. That he is human to begin with, and then he is transformed into a chimera. And that's what a, that's the whole idea of a chimera is that it's part human, or it could be part human, but it's it's a it's a mix of different kinds of animals. Right. And here he goes from being human to now being a hybrid between Satan and and human. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I, I before I came across your work, I had never heard of that kind of uh, spin on all this before. But um, as we're kind of running out of time here, and so. One of the last things I want to ask you, Doug, is what do you think we should do? You know, now that we have the information, now that we have kind of the knowledge, and, and I would I would recommend everyone to go get the book "Corrupting the Image." Um, uh, I think it's on your website, right, Doug? And you can find it on Amazon. Yeah. Yes. Um, what do you suggest we do about it? I mean, we have this information. I think this kind of information can help um, some of the people in the new age and a lot of these alternative spiritualities to come to see what Christianity, what Jesus has to offer in a very unique way. I, I think it's something that is uh, uh, not done enough in that realm as far as um, outreach is concerned. But what else do you think we can do? Well, I think, uh, you know, if we're talking to new agers and such, we can, we can give them an advanced warning uh, of what's coming, and, and hopefully, uh, even if they were to reject the gospel today, when they begin to see some of these things take place, they're like, well, wait a second, somebody warned about this, you right. know, I mean, the Bible ultimately, but, um, so, you know, that's on the one hand, I, but I also think that we need to have our eyes open to what the forces of darkness are doing so that we can pray against it, and I think we, it's a very ho-hum kind of situation, we just don't take it seriously, Right. And, um, you know, we're, we're more concerned about our, our church building project or whatever it may be right. when, when the battle is in the heavenlies. And uh, this is happening. This is, this is current, right? This is now, this kind of stuff. It's not, you know, in 10 years. These things are already happening. And so, for one, it gives us a real wake-up call that we are close. We're, you know, we're not um, 100 years out. We're not... 50 years out, you know, even if the transhumanists get their way, we're, we're less than 30 years out. Right. So we, we have to wake up and say, okay, time is short. So that means we need to not compromise with the world. We need to be careful with our time, how we use it. And of course, go out and tell people the gospel. Uh, nobody else is going to do it. We need to go do it. We've got to spread the gospel and speak every chance we get. And, you know, I think using the, the thing about aliens is, is a decent way to open a conversation with some people. It's so shocking that they're like, well, what do you mean? Tell me what you mean. Right. And so it may be a way to, to speak into some people's lives and uh, give them a perspective that they perhaps not, have not heard. You know, because a lot of people have heard the Jesus loves you and he's got a great plan for your life. and. They're like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard all that, but so what? What is this? How is this relevant, you know? And we begin yeah. to tell them, listen, you're going to get a, you know, you're going to have an encounter with God, and you've got to have a garment of salvation. In other words, you need to have a body of light 
so that you don't get toasted when you're in his presence. Right. And uh, there's only one way you can get that. It's not through the New Age. It's not through the arrival of the aliens. And I think we're seeing so many uh, shows nowadays, Ancient Aliens. Uh, we hear, of course, on the news, you've got Michio Kaku all the time. You've got uh, Stephen Hawking. These guys are continually on the news, beating the drum that the aliens are coming. And, you know, we can now, as believers, have a, uh, a biblical explanation and a counter-explanation to this whole idea that the aliens are coming, rather than saying, oh, all those guys are a bunch of nuts. Right. Uh, well, they, they may be nuts, but, but they're well-respected <laughs> and people are listening to them. Right. right. And so now we can actually give a counter-answer to what they are saying rather than just saying, oh, don't worry about that stuff. Because people are right. listening. People want to hear it. People want to believe that the aliens are coming. And we can, we can explain what's really going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, Doug, we're just about out of time here. I want to thank you uh, to no end for coming on the show and uh, talking with us tonight. Our inaugural guest, by the way. You are yeah. our first <laughs> guest on Canary Cry Radio, so you should feel... <laughs> Super privileged. <laughs> I'm just oh, kidding. I do. Yeah, no, it's great. Yeah, all thank you, you for uh, having me. All you uh, six listeners out there, which three and a half of them are uh, on this show right now. Hey now. Hey now. We know there's <laughs> more out there. All right. Well, that's uh, Doug Hamp, guys. His new book, Corrupting the Image. Very, very interesting. Very interesting stuff. I highly recommend you go get it. Um, once again, thank you so much, Doug, for being on the show. My pleasure. All right. So thanks a lot, guys, for tuning in for another episode of Canary Cry Radio. Again, check us out on Twitter at Canary Cry Radio, Facebook, uh, Revelations Radio Networks. Uh, sign up on iTunes for the podcast. And if you're visiting the website, thank you very much. Remember to give us an email or a comment. Uh, tell us how you like the show uh, or if you have any um, suggestions or anything like that. Um, remember, CISPA update here. Um, CISPA goes to Congress next week, so make sure you hit the link, sign the petitions, share it to your friends so we can preserve our online freedoms. Yeah, and um, right now we are in the process of trying to put together a conference um, here locally. We're coming out of the Orange County area here. And Doug would be one of the speakers there. So um, we ask for prayers and, you know, just support with that because we're trying to have it at a, a, a church that is not particularly open uh, to this kind of conversation. But um, as hopefully you've seen in, in this episode, we believe that it's a very important topic to be talking about. Um, so, uh, yeah, Doug, do you have a website? you have um, other ways to contact uh, people can contact you? Yes, it's douglashamp.com, uh, and they can either put that in or just Google yeah, it. Yeah, we'll, we'll uh, have show notes on that, too. Yeah, yeah so. douglashamp.com, and my, web, my book is there, and all my lots of articles. I've got lots of free stuff on there, and if they want to buy a book, that's even better. But uh, awesome. there's you know lots of, lots of articles and MP3s and all kinds of stuff they can enjoy. Lots of resources. Cool. Excellent, excellent. Thanks again, guys. Take care. Okay. Bye.
Thank you for listening to Canary Cry Radio. Contact Basil and Cons at canarycryradio at gmail.com. Also, please make sure you follow us on Twitter at Canary Cry Radio and like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash canarycryradio.